1: Hello and welcome to Women With Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today grew up in Horsham, but left to go to Swansea University, where she studied for a degree in politics and international relations. She was the first in her family to go to university. Upon leaving, she started her career in the media as a radio presenter, reporter and producer, as well as a brief stint at Little Chef. She joined Parliament in 2015 and upon entering national politics decided that she needed to get a political haircut in order to look more like a politician. When she arrived in Westminster, she decided to throw that book out of the window. It hasn't held her back. Since then, she has held a number of ministerial roles under Theresa May and Boris Johnson. In just under six years in Parliament, she has represented two constituencies – first elected to present Eastleigh in 2015 before coming home to represent Mid-Sussex at the 2019 election. More on that switch later. As a carer for her parents over the years and a divorced mother of two, she has been particularly passionate about social care, saying in 2016, we are nothing if we do not bring our own experiences to bear in our work in the House. My guest today is Mims Davies, the Parliamentary Under Secretary of State for Employment. Thank you very much for joining us today. You're joining us from your constituency, but we can see each other through uh, Zoom, so it's almost as though we're, we're here together. Now, on this podcast, what we like to begin every episode really doing is saying, you know, looking back to your childhood, would you describe yours as a happy childhood?
0: Yes, it was quite complicated. My dad was injured at work when I was 12. He was attacked in the street, nearly died, and it absolutely changed our lives financially. It meant that we were lucky to have him, but it created a long-term caring role for my mum. It meant that we lived a life on benefits after being quite affluent. He had come from a farming background and moved into building. And it really did show you that actually just something that happens in a day could really change your life. And it did shape what I thought about the world my mum had a really fantastic job working with disabled adults and I spent a lot of my childhood uh, spending time with her doing that and that really showed you, you know, the different challenges other families had. My dad was very political and very conservative, but he never knew it. And he spent his time watching political programmes and sport, nothing much in, in the middle. And it's actually through talking to him about issues and looking back to sort of Sunday dinner table chat that I realised that we were actually talking about politics.
1: Clearly that was something that really changed your life. How old were you when when that happened?
0: So I was 12 and he was in hospital for about six to eight weeks. For several weeks he didn't recognise anybody and then a couple of years later, they found out that he still had damage to his neck, which they hadn't found out during the head injury. He managed to go back to work briefly, but it completely changed our lives financially and turned my mum into, into a carer. And like many families, we didn't realise we were caring. We were just doing what you do. And that very much then impacts on the one who ends up being the carer. And my mum was incredibly agile, really wonderful uh, person that loved helping in the community. So then she did jobs fitting around that. She was a taxi driver, a florist delivery. And I was very proud to get to university and it was a real struggle to get there. So it was a happy childhood with lots of ups and downs. And I feel very lucky to have managed to, to get to study at university. Was not necessarily expecting that given the challenges we're going through.
1: Yeah, so a strong family unit, but lots of obstacles. So when it came to going to university, talk me through your high school years. Did you think about university? You're the first in your family to go. Was it something that was an obvious option to you? Did you have early career ambitions?
0: Absolutely not. I mean, we were going through several years of, of struggling through and being on benefits. My brother works in trades. So most of my cousins do that and farming. And I certainly did not expect to be able to to get to uni. I was expecting to go to Norwich. So I was expecting to go one way and I ended up in Swansea. And I lived there for nearly 10 years and it was the best experience that I can imagine. I went to a brilliant college in Horsham called Colliers, where I studied politics, that was an accident. I was meant to do French, it wasn't working out. So I flipped across to study politics and ended up doing a degree in international relations in Swansea and starting off my radio career there as well. So I've been on an accidental career journey all through my life. And that's why it's wonderful to be the employment minister because I know it's about jobs across life, not a job for life.
1: So you're studying politics at Swansea. We hear a lot in this podcast about the you know, the Oxford uni and politics scene, all, the, all these things. What was it like at Swansea? Was there much of a student politics movement? Did you get very involved? At that point, were you identifying as a conservative?
0: Absolutely not. God, No. <laughs> I was in Wales in the early 90s it wasn't so I was studying politics and I was probably more at that point interested in the international side of it and and theory particularly around feminism and women's rights and absolutely I did not join any of those groups I wouldn't have wanted to be you know come out would you as a a Tory I guess it was because I was interested in more the journalistic side at that point than perhaps sharing my views in fact many of the people that I worked with in radio and at the BBC when they saw me on the ballot and then winning in Eastleigh were absolutely like, you're a Tory? How did that happen? We had no idea, but you're nice. So I was like, yeah, well, actually, there's a bit more to people sometimes than you show. So certainly Swansea shaped my career. It's where I started in hospital radio. I had a fantastic time working at The Wave in Swansea for a long time. It was just brilliant. It's where I had multiple jobs to support being self-employed in radio. And it's you know challenging being in the creative arts at the best of times and we know at the moment through the worst of times it's really difficult so it really did shape the opportunities I've had but not necessarily that was going to move into politics it's always been community politics and community issues that has driven me into politics rather than that big stage stuff.
1: And Kui, you touched on your journalism, but you've had a, a lot of different jobs in your time. So I wondered, um, so there's Little Chef. I wonder you give us a, a little roundup of basically, before we get to politics, basically your pre-career in terms of the various things you've done.
0: Oh, I've done it all. So selling kitchens where you have the kind of kitchen doors down at the local shopping centre. So booking appointments for people to come round and, you know, have a look at a new kitchen for you. Working in a yoghurt factory. My brother used to get me occasional shifts there, which were very lucrative, very smelly. That smell between yoghurt and metal Not great. Little chef. I was there for most of my uni and my college days. Still got some great friends who went through the same experience. That nice little hat, that little bow cooking the Olympic breakfast. What's Um, the Olympic breakfast? Oh, well, that's where you get the steak, you get the eggs, you get the sausage, you get the beans, you get the wonderful sauté potatoes. So I was the griddle chef. I could still know exactly how long it takes to cook a little chef sausage. Yeah, I loved doing all of that. And it was wonderful to have that seasonal role that you could come back to, which could help make ends meet at uni. Sold pages and mobile phones. I remember having terrible problems at being able to turn up at nine o'clock in the morning to start work there. It seemed like a, a really hard slog to be able to be in at nine. And I've definitely done all sorts of stuff to it to keep keep me going one of my most enjoyable jobs as well was working in road safety so i was doing strategic comms working with the police fire service and making sure that we really focus on speeding drink driving all of those messages and i loved that job and helping out in the community
1: you're clearly very well qualified to be an employment minister, given your wide range. But was it journalism then you decided to focus on after university? So at what point did you start to think, actually, I want to do more in politics? And I know you've spoken about how it's that community politics that drove you. You got involved in local politics first.
0: Yeah. So if I'm honest, I got peed off with the local play facilities being not good enough. So I kept going into a local parish council and complaining and then eventually they co-opted me to stop me coming in complaining and that was in Sayers Common and and Hurstwood Point Parish Council, not not very far away from here. Then I moved into Mid-Sussex and was elected into the the district and the town council and sport and community and opportunities has always been key to me. So I was involved in developing the legacy event for London 2012 which is the three-legged marathon. So it's Mid-Sussex Marathon weekend, it's where you do 26 miles over three events in three towns so i was very keen that people felt engaged with with their town and that they were able to be fit and healthy so that was what was driving me but i really struggled in journalism. It's really difficult getting into there. I did some correspondence courses, I did some producing and presenting at the BBC. I did lots of travel. I loved being a travel news presenter. Did that for a long time as well, doing dance shows and talk shows. But actually I met many MPs when I worked in Hertfordshire on radio, Barbara Follett, Mark Prisk, Grant Shapps when he was fighting his first seat. And I suddenly realised that politicians were real people like me and actually, maybe I could get involved. And it wasn't until I was a councillor that my chairman at the time said, 2015 elections are coming up soon. Well, at that point, I had my second baby. I was breastfeeding and I thought, you're kidding, aren't you? I can't be an MP. But he sort of mentored me without me realising, pushed me forward. Back in 2008, when Cameron had done the call for a wider list, I'd asked for the papers and then left them in the office for three years, saying, well, I'm not quite ready or there, like typical, often women do. And a wonderful gentleman called John Demere, he's he's passed now, helped me sign my papers. And next minute I was in Cambridge having my interview and selection weekend for, for being a Conservative MP.
1: And talk us through the selection process because we, you know, for example, you often hear it's quite competitive. Clearly, depending on which seat you go for, particularly competitive. So, what was it like? As you say, often women, if you just look at the figures, will put off sending over of those forms. They need a bit more encouragement to. They think other people are better for this. So, so what was it like? As soon as you actually do put that form in and you're start starting to go for seats.
0: Oh, it was great. It was a weekend away from the husband and the kids. So I was like, oh, I've got my own little room and I can get to concentrate on myself. And you don't realise I think you're being assessed the whole way through. And I've met some wonderful people who've gone on to be MPs or candidates or PCCs. And I was just going to dip my toe in the water. I really did not expect to pass. actually spoke to Paul Scully about it just before my, my weekend there. And he'd been really trying to get through his PAB. And there was really good support on that. But I went there really relaxed and enjoyed the weekend of focusing on myself. And didn't really set any expectations. And I thought being an MP would take 10 or 15 years to get to that point. And then you know all of a sudden this weekend away you get this pass you can start applying for seats and next minute I'm the on the reserve list for Eastleigh I came back from a a weekend in Scotland when I was on holiday with my family to be called in for a late interview because someone had been selected elsewhere and by the end of the evening I was the new Eastleigh candidate off the back of a very difficult by-election and sort of pinched myself so it was my first interview my first seat the 65th most unwinnable seat in the country so I thought well just run at the gate and give it a go and it turned out to be the most amazing experience I was incredibly proud five years of my life.
1: What's it like when you're suddenly, I mean, you weren't living in Eastleigh at the time, were you? So what is it like when you've got a young family and all of a sudden overnight, you know, your life is changing? It's something you want, but it's also quite a drastic move.
0: Yeah, and you don't expect it to actually happen. So we rented for for nine months a fantastic, wonderful place in beautiful Bersaldon. And I really thought that my life was going to be in Hampshire, having been a Sussex girl for a long time. And I certainly thought we'll do our best. We'll work really, really hard and and see what we can do after a really difficult by-election. Fantastic team, amazing, small, wonderful, committed association. So I won and that was incredible with a 9,000 majority. And I went from someone who was sort of having a practice run at a seat with two small children and a husband to think about to suddenly finding that, you know, life had changed massively. And at the time, David Cameron, while first majority, although small, we had a massive government agenda to get on with. And basically, the next six months was a lot about being in London as much as being in the constituency.
1: And when you got to Parliament, what surprised you? Was it it as you had imagined?
0: Everything, actually, because I had just about been to Parliament. I hadn't worked in Parliament. I didn't know anyone. I didn't have this great, you know, log of connections of people that I'd been with. I hadn't been to university with the right people, all of that stuff. So I felt very much like the unexpected new girl. It was so nice, actually. And we're on such a high after 2015. I remember being in committee room 14 and this eruption and so many conservatives. And we just hadn't seen that before. And obviously, we saw that again with our most recent win. But it was absolutely marvellous. And what I did find in that first six months where we had so much to do up in Westminster, I found myself sitting with fabulous people like Sir Alan Hazlehurst. And sitting down and chatting and listening and learning to John Hayes, people giving their experience of knowledge about how to do the job, how to find out how to do it yourself and how to make the best of it. I found actually we really wanted to be a more broad, outward looking party, more inclusive And lots of our gents really were proud of their wives, their daughters, their grandchildren. And they wanted our party to look and feel like that. So they were delighted to have that fresh intake of new people. And I was just sucking in every bit of learning every single day.
1: And fast forwarding. So (laughs) forgive me, because obviously we have have a limited time in this podcast. So I'm going to skip to the 2017 election, at which point you increase your vote share. So, so that's obviously good news in terms of your constituency, but also you're returning to a parliament that's very different. You, and Theresa May is now in charge, but what people thought was going to be a really large Tory majority is actually worse than what you went into the election with. And you spoke about that positive mood in 2015. How did it shift in 2017 as someone who was there?
0: Well, that was one heck of an election because many of us did the London Marathon the week before, heading into a very short election. I could barely walk to do any leaflets. And I know that many other people were in similar situations. So we all came back absolutely exhausted after a very quick campaign. And I think there was a determination to get on with it. But it felt like we'd been winded. I think that is the honest answer.
1: But in terms of your career, you are uh, quite quickly promoted after that election. You become a government whip and go on to uh, roll for the Wales office. How did you find, I suppose, the first off, uh, whip to lots of people I think it's quite hard to imagine what that job actually involves. So so what is that? Is that you are spying on your colleagues or just ushering them along and speaking to people?
0: So I'd PPS for Matt Hancock and Sajid Javid before that. And then I was the whip for DEFRA with Michael Gove. So I really felt that I had a great experience of working with fantastic secretaries of states and ministerial teams. Working with Michael, I mean, he's incredibly mercurial, exciting. You know, you just don't know what's going to come out of the the weekly meeting. And you are the eyes and ears of the Prime Minister in the department. And you are, you know, linking in to what can be delivered and what needs doing. And there was a lot going on at DEFRA. And, you know, we've really seen it as a party, the benefit in terms of our focus on the environment. And what you do have to do is just make sure you can bring colleagues on that journey. Of course, you've got a flock to look after, an interesting mix of personalities, some people who can't believe they've got to deal with you as an upstart and some people who really do need support and help. But in terms of how to get legislation through, how government works, how difficult it was in those days with Teresa trying to, to get this deal through. It was re- staggering. I remember my first count through the lobbies on one of the boats, which was a total knife edge, and I was counting the people through. It was boiling hot. I felt like my legs were going to give way. And then, of course, all tele cameras straight on you in the chamber as you announced the result. I mean, the pressure was immense.
1: <laughs> oh, God, wow. I also would never trust my maths at that point. <laughs>
0: I used to have this card where you mark off the hundreds So once you've got to the hundred you chit it off because vote after vote you suddenly realise it all feels the same and then you start to write down the numbers on it but it's very difficult I agree with you your your basic maths feels like it's never been there.
1: Then you're made parliamentary undersecretary state for Wales did your time in Swansea help you with that?
0: absolutely so I did the North Wales growth deal it's a 200 million pound deal there's now a growth deal in every part of Wales and I know a start and so many of my family live and are from Wales when I lived there I never thought I was going to leave so at one point there was more conservative MPs called Davis than there were the whole of the Lib Dems so we were very proud of that at that point but I loved being Wales Minister because I know The start and the support that I had, and it was really, really important for us to understand, particularly through things like the Shared Prosperity Fund, you know, just what each community needs. And I think, in terms of the Leveling Up agenda, that's really important to to understand and just make sure that you're not making decisions in Whitehall with no knowledge of what those communities want and need. And that is always driving me as a minister to be focused on that when you make those decisions.
1: Now, you mentioned earlier when you were at university that when you think about things that you're passionate about, it was actually things like women's rights were initially what drove you more. And I just wanted to touch on briefly, in 2018, you resigned from a committee chaired by the Commons Speaker, John Burko, citing a lack of confidence in his ability to tackle bullying and sexual harassment. I just wanted if you could talk us through, feels a little bit further away now, what happened there and why you made that decision.
0: Yeah, I haven't said much about it. John was always incredibly welcoming to new MPs and many of us found working with him a really positive experience. The reality is on that committee, it became a pretty negative experience. It was about diversion and inclusion and at the point around the the bullying allegations and the behavioural allegations, it just became very difficult to be on that committee alongside that. Several of us felt he should move aside When he didn't, I chose to.
1: We're going to shortly get on to your current role and the, the new election, but um, you had what I think is regarded as one of the most fun jobs in government as Minister for Sport for DCMS. Given that your dad is someone who is very interested in politics and sport, is that one that your family took an avid interest in?
0: Oh, everybody. I was suddenly everybody's best friend. And I went to some amazing events from, from Silverstone to, to Henley to Wimbledon. But actually, what we're most proud of there, was was tackling racism in football, the insidious behaviour which was starting to creep into the terraces and really starting to take that on, really focusing on activity around children and women's sport, making sure that we get better coverage for, for women's sport, better sponsorship and better help and I really feel that we turned the corner on that one. Very proud as well to get out of Philip Hammond 800 million for the the commonwealth games in birmingham believe me extracting that from the checkbook was pretty challenging so yeah it was fun but i was very mindful about the issues around sport i was trying to pick up some of the work that tracy crouch was doing around safeguarding and coaching in sport and i know that that nigel huddleston's picking up on that so it's a great job but i also had loneliness and charities as well and it was very very busy i'd go back there in a heartbeat but also because of the issues for me but for me coming to DWP doing such a big operational job with a huge budget has been probably one of the most challenging and proudest roles and I think any role that you get asked to do you have to do it driven by the focus of the outcomes for the community and that's what drives me in any of the roles I've had.
1: Now I want to end the progress by focusing on DWP, but just the final thing I want to touch on before we get there was just I mentioned in the introduction that you've represented two seats and at the 2019 election you actually said that you were going to stand down, you talked about spending more time with your family. I think we often hear about how difficult it is, particularly as a, a working parent, and particularly a single parent, to to balance politics and, you know, family. So so what is it that led you to, to that point? Did it feel as though Parliament had become a more difficult place, that was quite a bruising period, or was it just actually uh, I need to have this focus because logistically it's too hard?
0: So I came into this not a single parent and not expecting to be one. And that in itself was really difficult to manage through. But I was absolutely determined to stand up for Eastleigh and take the opportunity I had. And I I loved it. And I was very proud of it. And I thought, well, I'll do two elections. I didn't really note that there were going to be two in quite quick successions. But the reality is my children were getting older and they started their lives. And it was much easier to say, you know, know, sit there and colour that while mummy has this quick meeting. But once they've got lives and balancing going to their dads and everything else... I found that I just felt that I couldn't do the job the way that I wanted to and I thought I would rather take the experience that I've got and move on than do something not well and I felt in danger of that. And I feel extremely lucky that serendipity meant that I was able to to come home. Yeah,
1: because it's often when people move seats seen as a chicken run. And in this case, it was about your family. So it's different. But I wondered when you saw Nicholas Soames' seat come up, were you just like, this this is a sign from above? And was he helpful? You mentioned, a, you know these long-time Tory male politicians who want the party to be, you know, more open and more modern. Was he uh, helpful in, you know, giving you some tips on getting that seat?
0: So I've managed to get a 14,000 majority in, in a seat that hadn't been ours for 22 years. So I always dispute the chicken run points, Yeah. And, and actually, Paul's now got a sixteen or 17,000 majority, so he's done better than me. So I feel like we won two seats on that day, and I'm very pleased for him and for, for the local association. I found myself in an eye of a storm about it because I didn't really expect to be in that scenario and I obviously was hoping that we would go through till 2022. And it, the ironic thing of being the employment minister making yourself unemployed, that was not lost on me at all. Many people in the party, including the prime minister and other people, asked me to consider whether I you know, really did want to leave. I just couldn't make it work. And I thought I would rather come back in the future and I know Sir Nicholas several times was perhaps thinking about not continuing, certainly in twenty fifteen and seventeen, so there was no guarantee of this and I certainly didn't expect it. And I just hope now that people do see that I did both jobs and everything with for the right intentions. And I think sometimes you've just got to say this isn't working and, and don't think politics is any different.
1: Now you are now employment minister in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> It's, it's a daunting role. Can you just talk us through a day in the life in terms of what you do for, for people who aren't, I suppose, I favoured there?
0: Yeah, well, coming into this, we had a jobs miracle. So last January, we were planning for, you know, how to help those people, the biggest barriers. People were, with the 45-year employment high, still weren't getting to progress. So Therese and I and the team have had a big focus on progression, and you'll see more about that over the coming weeks. But we had to really quickly stand up employment support, very well supported by the Treasury. So in the plan for jobs in July, Kickstart was announced. We have our swaps and our jets and our JFS stuff. So what on earth does that mean? jets is more intensive support for those people after six months of losing their job jfs is extra support than beyond the work coach it's additional employment services and uh, we've also got our swaps which are our sector-based work academy programs so these are up to six weeks of training and guaranteed job interview in a particular sector so i've seen people with a retail logistics background doing that and moving into construction so what do i do every day well we stood up the kickstart program since it's a Announced in July to applications in September, November, applications landing and people starting work from December. 120,000 plus jobs there, more than the Future Jobs Fund achieved ever. And we've done that in a couple of months. It's now about converting those into starts and pushing for that 250,000 amount. So for me, it's about supporting our work coaches. Our job centres over 630 across the UK in every different community. We're expanding our work coaches, doubling that number. So we're doing that in the background, expanding our estates and renewing that as well. And just really making sure that our work coaches can really focus on that individual in front of them, working on something as well called Train to Progress. So we can help people through the benefit system to progress that way. So lots of work just to try and make sure that as an individual, younger or older and in the labour market and impacted by the pandemic, we've got a programme or a way to support you.
1: You mentioned the Kickstart scheme. You're not wearing the hoodie, which I often see that the Chancellor adorn.
0: <laughs> I haven't got one. They're very limited editions. So I think the Chancellor's got one. I think Treys has got one and a few of our wonderful people have. So I think Kickstart socks would be good as well. I quite like the idea of yeah. them. Good branding.
1: I want to just touch on unemployment. It's risen to 5% according to latest figures. But there is, I think, this, this general consensus that this number is in a way, artificially low because of the furlough scheme. We don't know when these things are going to end. When you're looking, I suppose, and planning ahead, when do you think could be the most difficult time in in terms of those worried about unemployment?
0: So the the DWP line, and I think it's an important line, is that we plan for all scenarios. And furlough, as you say, is supported at one point up to... You know, 12 million people. The employment drop this last month was just under 2% for men and 0.4% for women. We know that it's London the and the South East and the North East in particular, where we're looking to open more job centres and that, that 5% mark we haven't hit since 2016. So, you know, these are concerning times for people. And behind every single one of these statistics is a family, a community, a person. And I'm very mindful of that.
1: And there's been a conversation about the universal credit uplift, the 20 panel week. And to be honest, it's such a moving situation that we are expecting an announcement at at some point. But what I wondered rather than, you know, is or isn't it going to happen is you mentioned earlier how your family obviously has something unexpected happen and you got to a point where you did have to rely on benefits. Do you think that that experience has given you, uh, I suppose, not a unique insight, but a an insight that helps you in your current job. It's not one that, you know, everyone in the Tory party does have.
0: Yeah, it definitely drives me. And I, when the Prime Minister appointed me to this role, he spoke about my interest in young people, my compassion and inequality. Not inequality, but inequality, if I should probably make that a bit clearer. But actually, that is what drives me. And it is that really life experience understanding about being a single mum, about having to, to balance caring. And, and of course, people are focused on the universal credit debate. But I guess that's what I'm saying about Plan. jobs there's two sides to dwp support there's of course the benefit support but the personal tailored employment support what you get from work coaches the fact that you see is an in-work benefit that will taper around what you can do that we've got these interventions to help people to move sectors get more confidence you name it so this is why the government needs to have a mixture of interventions to help people as you say when the unexpected happens
1: now, final two things I really wanted to ask. Just, just final thing on that is we've heard. You know, I think it was Louis Casey who recently suggested that the Tory Party could start to be seen as a nasty party again. You mentioned how when you were at university in Swansea, you, you did not identify as a Tory, and perhaps, perhaps even if you did privately, you wouldn't have announced it out loud. Do you think that? Is a misconception about how the Tory party is on things like benefits? Do do you think that it is unfair how the party is sometimes depicted there?
0: Yeah, and I think we've got a real battle at the moment because we've got an 80 seat majority everybody who doesn't like Conservatives is lining up to point out that we are uncaring, we don't live in the real world, we don't get people. And that's just simply not true. Kickstart is a a classic example of giving young people the ladder to make sure that they are least impacted by the pandemic, to give them that six months worth of work experience, to give them that network, that opportunity. I think you know paying people to go away doesn't work. And as I say, when I came into this job, it was about working out how people with the biggest barriers can start to progress. And that's what drives me. And I think we have to be fighting every single day to get our narrative to land about the fact we do care about the most vulnerable in society. We supported them through the £280 billion of interventions. And absolutely, we need to be showing the breadth and different people that we've got in our party and try and break down that. I think it's a lazy stereotype. And frankly, it's not becoming of other parties.
1: Now, two lighter questions just to end. The first is, we've asked a few people, how have you been relaxing during lockdown? I think Emily Thornbreed told us silk cut and gin. <laughs> Wow. Well,
0: I, I have got one of those indoor bikes because last year I was relaxing a little bit too much and not getting out running and looking after myself enough. So I've been screaming and shouting while on this bike.
1: Is um, it a Peloton like Rishi's or is it? A-
0: yeah, I've got to say I, you know, caved in and bought one of them, but i meant to be doing a marathon this year. And I, I thought, I've got to do something about getting the weight off and running is really hard when you're used to running a lot lighter. So I have been doing that and I must say I've really enjoyed it and it was a moment of madness. So I'm quite pleased I actually like it. And I've I've tried to stick to the mini bottles of wine because I find that if I'm here on my own opening a big one is only going to go one way. So I've been buying a a strange array of mini bottles of wine and trying to keep fitter and walking the dog. But it's weird, you get to spend strangely more time with your children although you're ignoring them most of the day because you're all on screens either learning or working
1: good we're taking quite different approaches with our wines I've gone just for boxes during lockdown so I can't I can't even work out myself how much I've drunk
0: Um, since being over 40 the idea of a box of wine sounds brilliant but the hangovers and the weight gain don't sound so good so enjoy it while you can
1: (laughs) and then the final question is when we ask everyone on this podcast which is what is the worst advice you've ever been given and you, you could have taken it you could have ignored it we're very open
0: oh that is such a good question I think in terms if you want to progress in politics there tends to be a feeling that you should conform that you should get your nice blue suit and your pearls and a white t-shirt and turn up at all your interviews and your events and look like that and that's certainly what a few people said you know Mims you're a bit blonde you're a bit blousy you're a bit you know not us so you know that's why I cut my hair which I do regret because I can't ever grow it back as long as it it was then so definitely don't listen to that so I think that was pretty bad advice because I do find then actually speaking to candidates and mentoring other women and asking them to come into politics I say get the sparkle on get the glitter on wear the haircut you want wear the type of jewelry that's you because you you know you've got to be you when you get there And you've got to be confident in the person that you are when you're there performing at the box, speaking at constituency events or wherever. So don't listen to this conforming rubbish. Get the jumpsuits on, get the spangle on, whatever you need to do to feel confident. And I think that will do you well. So I think the bad advice quite often is the one that I've been told that to progress in the party, you've got to look a certain way. And that is, as far as I can tell, rubbish.
1: Thank you, Mims. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk.